Good to see you. We are in Malachi chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, uh, get to verse 10. There's a small section there that we have to deal with. Today, as in every week through Malachi, we get to look at another sin that God confronts in his people. So let me just give you a heads up. This is stuff, 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 and it's heavy duty for us. And so in this particular week, this particular section, um, God, uh, his issue that he confronts is the issue of marriage. And if I want to be really specific, it is he confronts the, how men treat their wives. So I want everybody to look at me. This is not going to be fun. I mean, you're laughing now. In a half an hour, you won't be laughing. I've, I've been studying this thing for probably over a year um, because I want to be precise and because this, this, this word just crushes me. So I want to make certain that I don't get in the way and I want to make certain that you hear the Holy Spirit, but I'm going to ask you to really do some things for me, for yourself, maybe, as we get into it. I want you to listen. And I know you say, well, I always listen, but I, I just think there's a world of difference between cognitive hearing with your ears and your heart. And if you have any resistance, you know, if like you go, I'm not here for this or I'm not here for that and church is a place to be happy, I'm just telling you, that's not what God offers us in Malachi. So I'm just going to try to say it and not get in the way of it and it isn't going to be a lot of fun, but I want you to hear it. The second thing I want you to do is I want you to be humble. You're going to, br- everyone, we bring stories in here. And when we're talking about the subject of mari- marriage, everyone has a story. I want you to be humble with that, your particular experience. And then I want you to be humble with what you think you know about what the word says about marriage and divorce. Because we're going to try to look at it and try to deal with it fairly. Um, so let's do this. Let's just read it and then we'll pray together. Verse 10. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary, the word is really holiness, the holiness of the Lord, which he loves. And he's married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with the portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the, what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to your wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you guard my lips. And I pray that you guard our hearts. Your word tells us that it's your kindness that leads us to brokenness and repentance. So God, we're asking for your kindness today. And I, I guess I speak for us when I say it's not fun to have you sift us, but God, it is clearly where we're at. And so I, I pray, God, that uh, we can hear it. 
from your spirit. We can feel what you want us to feel and respond in a way that brings you glory. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think this subject is pertinent and it matters. So you're, you're either married, we're married, going to get married. So marriage seems to be almost a universal, like we're going to do it. So you should care what God has to say about this. There is so much in this passage, to be honest with you, it's hard to unpack it all. So I'm going to try to narrow our focus to just answering three questions. What does God say about marriage? What does he say about divorce? And what does he say to the broken? Okay, that's, that's what our attempt to do is. So what is the problem that God calls out on Israel in this section. As you're reading it, did you hear it? There was a word that just rang and rang and rang over and over again. It was mentioned five particular times. It's the word faithless. That's what he says. Now, the word faithless is an interesting word because it, it really is better interpreted treacherous or treachery. So what God is calling Israel out on is, to the men, you have been treacherous towards your wives. That makes it a little bit more gory, doesn't it? It implies a whole bunch of things, and it should because the word actually was used to describe a, a kind of a pseudo-garment you would cover covert actions and intentions. So, so the treachery right there is how the men of Israel are actually treating their wives in marriage, and the actions aren't good. So that's what he's bringing against them. So if I unpack kind of the particulars of the accusations of God, it starts out like this, that they're being faithless to him that they are profaning his sanctuary, his holiness, that somehow God is not honored by their behavior. And you might say, well, how? What's the behavior, God? What's the problem? And the first thing he says is they're being faithless to the covenant of marriage. And how are they doing that? They're marrying women who worship foreign gods. That might not move your needle, but it does for God. It happens kind of like this. E e either the decision the men of Israel were making was to marry their first wife who didn't agree with their God, like just an unbelieving wife, or they would jettison their wife of the covenant in order to marry the wife who follows a foreign God. The issue that God has is that there's a havoc that is created by the influences of the unbeliever into the faith of the people. So watch this. It's like an open window to your heart. If you become unequally yoked, God sees something about that, and he cares about that, and he talks about that here, and that's how he calls them out first. That's a, that's a faithless act, is what he says. I think it's interesting as you kind of work through this passage, the faithfulness created a lot of pain. Verse 13 is interesting because it describes a situation that God witnesses. He says, well, you have covered my altar with tears and groaning and weeping. And I think you can look at it from two angles. I can picture I can picture the women who have been dealt with treacherously, treacherously, who end up at the altar and going, God, I've been abandoned. My heart's broken. This shouldn't have happened. I'm not being treated fairly. And so God is entertaining all the cries of his daughters who are just getting run over by men. And then I can picture a second half of that statement, like men who show up at church to fake a devotion that isn't true, like, oh, God, we love you, God. We love you, God. And then in the background, we're brutal to our wives. I told you this is hard. But that's certainly what's happening here. He calls them out on their faithlessness. The outcome to that is the faithlessness to their children, which we're going to unpack in a little bit. In verse 16, their faithlessness resulted in neglect and violence towards their wives. That is a terrible picture of what's going on in Israel. So I probably don't have to tell you, God is not happy. Right? 
Don't be afraid, I love you, right? Okay, let me ask you a question. Is he happy with you? I need your eyes. I, I want you to hear this because I really feel anxious from the spirit that some of you need to hear this. Is he happy with you? If God sees, he really sees what's behind closed doors, what does he see? That's what we got the burden to deal with today, every one of us. So I said this passage is confrontational, but I don't think we can take a half an hour of this, so I'm going to start with good news. Is that okay? Um, it's kind of hard to see reading it, the, the happy in the spaces here. But I think what's portrayed in Malachi 2 is a picture of a beautiful marriage. But I'm gonna, before I get to what Malachi says, I want to just kind of launch into like two minutes of assumptions about what we think or what we think the Bible teaches about marriage, just so that we're working from the same grid work, okay? Marriage is, as the Bible defines it, God ordained. My assumption is you've heard that before, right? Genesis 2 lays it out for us. It says it's not good for man to be alone, so I'm going to make a helper for him, right? So we kind of know, oh, oh, God made this. God invented this. It's God ordained. We probably have heard or understand that marriage, as far as God's concerned, is supposed to be a lifelong commitment. Jesus said, what God has put together, let no man separate. So at least maybe you've heard that somewhere. Maybe you stood in an altar somewhere and those words came out of your mouth or out of the pastor's mouth. And so at least you know that. We understand that marriage, as far as the scriptures are concerned, is between one man and one woman. Genesis 1 and 2, it's unavoidable. Male and female, he's created them and the two will become one flesh in spite of what the culture says and losing their mind. God is very specific of what marriage is. And we are to love each other. No surprise, right? Isn't that what you commit to when you, when you walk the aisle? And how Paul describes marriage, at least how we relate to each other, is, a, is a, a way of a picture in Ephesians 5. Because when husbands love their wives in that kind of way, it's sort of, it, and Paul says this, it's a picture of how Christ loves his bride, the church. And when the church loves Jesus, that's seen in the picture of a wife who loves her husband. So wonderful picture. So can I assume that we understand the general thought about marriage? You've heard that before? Okay, let's deal with the specifics in this, in this passage to so see what else is beautiful about marriage. First of all, it's, it's unbelievable, but God made us one. So what he says in verse 10 and 15, one father, one God, made one with a portion of his spirit. Completely, perfectly complementary. Different, but equal. That's how the Bible defines the uniqueness of us under God. God, in his amazing wisdom and kindness, does this. Everything our wives needs, with everything he's made me to be, or he's changed me to be, and everything that he needs is everything that God has made her to be. A wonderful, complementary part of this oneness under the Father, right? Right? But also the text goes on to say that this, this beauty of marriage, it's a gift for your faith. God's charge against Israel was their faithlessness when they started to marry the wrong women. The text says married women of foreign gods. And God's problem isn't interracial marriage. You know what his problem is? Holiness. Holiness. God knew, God knew why men leave their current wives for other wives. Idolatry is why. The only reason why you go, give me a better one, give me a prettier one, give me a younger one, give me a different one than the one I have is simply because you care more about how you feel than godliness. And God knows idolatry is the motivation behind jettisoning covenant and commitments. He knows that. 
And let me give you something else. God knows that the decision to marry daughters who don't worship him doesn't just end the problem at the wedding chapel. It goes on. He knows the influence will turn their hearts away from him. But the beautiful part of marriage that's centered in Christ, this is where it gets beautiful. The beautiful part of marriage that's centered in Christ is two people who love and follow Jesus. They pull in the same direction, experience a daily reminder there's something more important than themselves and someone more worthy of worship and your life than you or your particular stories. Jesus centers us. Amen? That's what the scriptures say. Marriage is an amazing gift for your faith. I, I call marriage the first and greatest small group ever invented. Okay? It's the best one. Marriage is supposed to, it's beautiful. It's supposed to be a gift for her. The text says in verse 14, she is your companion. It's the idea of helper, which is exactly what God says when he made Eve for Adam, the wife or your wife by covenant. Exodus 21 kind of reveals the covenant commitment in marriage, and it kind of comes in a sort of a little surprising way. When we were dealing with Exodus, I, I'm certain we skipped over it or, or didn't really notice it. But in that particular story, the covenant is described. The husband's responsibilities were to provide love and protection and provision. That's the understanding. That's what you do. That's the covenant commitment. It's interesting if you consider what Paul says. He sort of, and he doesn't just sort of, he really bookends all of the Bible's teaching on marriage. If you find it first in Exodus 21, you find it at the end in Ephesians chapter 5. And both of them, get this, say exactly the same thing. In the covenant, you have love, protect, and provide. In Ephesians, the New Testament, God's last word on the matter is Paul saying to husbands, husbands, love your wives and cherish and nurture her. Same words. Feed her and provide warmth. That's the phrase. So somehow in God's parameters of all that he would say about the covenant of marriage, he says exactly the same thing, and it's supposed to apply to all history and what marriage looks like for God's people, a covenant commitment, right? So we, we should understand that. Marriage is to be a gift for our wives. And, and let me just say this, and this is where I just feel like I gotta be blunt, and, and so I'm trusting the men in here won't shy away from the bluntness, but... The most prominent reason for trouble in our marriage is one reason. Gentlemen, we don't live up to this. I'm not a woman. I hope you know that. Um, but I'm trying to picture someone loving me and cherishing me and providing for me selflessly in the radical ways that God describes it and that have it be the most winsome thing in the world that fans the flourishment of that person it would be as if Jesus walked in the room if we treated our wives like that. That's a burden. I think marriage is to be a gift for her. Good news, gentlemen. It was also supposed to be a gift to, to us. In fact, the text says here that she is your companion. Again, that's the helper language. Uh, we could do a whole sermon on that, but I'm just going to be transparent. The, there's a phrase in here that just wrecks me. I've been studying this for a long time and Every time I read it, I cry. When God says that Israel has lost favor because of their treachery, God says it's because I've been watching you and how you treat your wife. And then he describes her with this phrase, and this is the part that just kills me. He says, she's the wife of your youth. That is the treasure, gentlemen, and you have no idea. Let me try to help. 
Who can do what the wife of your youth can do? To watch you be a complete idiot and still allow you the room to grow up. Who forgives things that no one else would? Who knows more about you than any other person in the world except for God and she still won't quit? Who forgives and forgets and doesn't use your greatest sin and shame to define your future? Who listens to you worry and listens to you brag and loves you anyway? Who chooses to believe the best about you when she should have enough evidence not to? Who watches you say and do the stupidest things and still sits with you everywhere you go? Who stands there to defend you when the entire world accuses you? Who's the only one who says she's proud of you and really means it? You know why God cares about the covenant of marriage? Because you only get one of those. You want to you know the gift that he's offering you to stay together for that, gentlemen. And if you get so cavalier, you just throw it off because it's in the way and it's too inconvenient for you, you are robbing yourself of the gift that God provides in this. Do you understand? There's another beautiful part to marriage and that is the gift it is to the kids. He says, what does God want? Godly offspring. Faithlessness in our marriage doesn't help the spiritual life of our children. And I'm not saying that God doesn't superabound. He always does. So if you come from a situation where just sin broke it all up or whatever, I know God can do more. I know he overcomes. I know he can do something that creates fear of the Lord in them. All I'm telling you is that the way the Bible presents it, treachery in marriage is a hurdle, not a help. That's how the Bible defines it. I, I, I can say this, and I'll bet you'll amen it. I, I don't really love anybody like I love my boys. I'm for them. So guys, just think about it. Don't just assume the best is going to happen when you're reckless with your covenant. Again, I, I'm trying to put it where the text puts it, but guys, it's on us to love our wives. It's on us to, to care for them and nurture them and provide for them. It's on us. And when you do, get this, according to the scriptures, you're discipling your children. That's a wonderful picture of marriage. If that's all we ever got about marriage, you would go, well, that's worth it. All of that's worth it. Good for him, good for her, good for my faith, good for them. Why wouldn't you? It's a beautiful picture. Okay, was that intense? It gets worse. <laughs> that's the happy part. Let's answer this question. What does God say about divorce? Probably the most familiar part of all of Malachi, if we said to you when we started, hey, we're going to study Malachi, my guess is if you knew anything about Malachi, you knew Malachi 2.16. When I was a kid, I had, uh, I had only one Bible. I think there was only one verse. I don't even remember. In the 60s, King James. That was all I had. In the 70s somewhere, I got this new translation called the New American Standard. But they both basically say the same thing. And it's sort of a, a pithy, short, easy to remember, intense. I don't have any problem with that. It's clear. God hates divorce. And then my brain shut down. I mean, if God hates it, nothing else to talk about. But if you were paying attention when, paying attention when I read verse 16, it might sound a little different to you. So let's read it again, and then I'm going to try to unpack verse 16 for us. 
For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless or treacherous. That sounds different, doesn't it? It, sound, it should sound different. I think in order to understand this, we've got to back up and look at the big picture again and just kind of repeat ourselves. What is God confronting in this paragraph to Israel? We said it, one word, faithlessness, right? Faithfulness to one another, faithless to God, and faithless to their wives. So if you narrow the focus in verse 16 to the treachery he's calling out in verse 16, what are you left with? I don't care what version you pick. What is he calling out? This is what he says. The man who does not love, his wife. The word does not love is the word hate. So it's way more intense than indifference. The man who hates his wife. What else does God call out in verse 16? The man who covers his garment with violence. What else does he call out? The man who abandons his wife and divorces her. Perhaps you've read 2.16 before, many times, and the only thing you can recall is God hates divorce. But if you can look at this passage from the actual subject that he's bringing up in here, what do you think now? Because he's clearly hating something in this passage. So if you think his only issue is just divorce, go ahead and be held to each other, but don't divorce, then you're missing the whole point. I'll just really be blunt. God hates treacherous husbands. How does that feel? So if you didn't come to church to be... uh, all this weight put on you. I'm sorry. But that's what he says. In the Old Testament, there was a custom. I think it came from Ezekiel 16, to be honest with you, when God is describing his affections for his people. The illustration is used of how he, he throws out his garment uh, for his people. And it, it implies some things. And so in the, old, in, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew people had this custom where they would, they would take a garment, the husband would, when he's calling a woman to be his wife, and he would either wrap it around her or put it over her, and it said volumes about how he feels and what he's committed to. Like, under this garment... I will love you. Under this garment, I've got you. Under this garment, you will be protected and provided for, and I'm for you, and I will nourish and care for you. That was the implication. So what what does God find with these men? They're using the covering of marriage to hide the abuse of their wives. That's what he calls them out on. This subject could, could uh, be dealt with in many sermons, but we're not going to. So let me try to do a, what I would call a, an absolute speed version of what the Bible says about divorce, okay? I've already mentioned to you Exodus chapter 21, and it's the description of the covenant commitments between a husband or a husband to a wife. And in that story, it's, it, we kind of, like I said, skipped it, but the story is a suggestion that... Uh, that if you have a slave girl that you want to make your wife or another wife is how it's described, then you have the covenant responsibility to provide the shelter, the protection, the love for her. And if you don't, she can go away. She can leave. That's in the covenant. And most theologians would say, well, if it was true for the slave girl, it would be true for the free girl. And if it's true for the free, it'd be true for the only wife. So this, is, this deals with whatever option you have. Man, if you take a wife, God expects you to deliver on the covenant. That's, that's the point of Exodus. Another text you're probably familiar with is Deuteronomy 24, where it describes the law concerning divorce. 
And what's interesting, it doesn't really talk about divorce and its rightness or its wrongness. It just starts from a position that it's assumed, that it happens. And it instructs one simple phrase. When a man finds something indecent in his wife, to write her a certificate and let her go. Right? So what happened, and we've got to get to this later, is the misinterpretation of the something indecent. But it started a whole sort of series of problems in Israel. They interpret that phrase as anything, anything, something indecent. And that's not at all what the text says. But it's interesting. Set that aside for a second. If you keep reading where God bows up and declares an abomination, isn't the beginning, it's the end. And what he confronts is the man who deals treacherously with his wife. Because this is what's happening. This woman, for whatever reason, again, Israel has already decided that we're just going to hand out certificates. If I'm not happy, if I'm not enjoying you, if I want something else, I give you a certificate and you're out of here. What happens is this woman in this story ends up marrying someone else, potentially, or this man that she married next dies, and the first husband marries her back. And what the problem that God has is that the men in Israel, um, when they abandon their covenant relationship with their wife, also cut off the dowry payments for her security. In other words, there's sort of a life insurance policy, a security policy for the women that men paid this dowry. And what it meant was if a, if a husband died or tragedy happened, there'd be something to care for her. But the Israel men were doing this for any reason. I can get rid of her, and when I get rid of her, I can stop taking care of my responsibilities. And you know what happens then? Problems. And God calls them out. And what would, what would happen is this first husband, after this woman married again, after he threw her out, He'd marry her back and not even concern himself with her security. He wouldn't start the dowry payments again. The abomination for God was the mistreatment of wives in Deuteronomy 24. Which is exactly what Jesus addresses in chapter 19 of Matthew. You're probably familiar with this. The Pharisees asked Jesus about divorce. And Jesus says, what God has put together, don't let anybody separate. And they say to him, well... Moses said we could just hand out these certificates. So why are you being so rigid about this, Jesus? And his answer was, he said it because you're hard-hearted toward your wife. That was his answer in Matthew 19. Divorce was allowed to, for the reason to protect the wives from the treacherous nature of the husband. You can't avoid it. Perhaps you remember even another passage that talks about the issue of divorce in 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul talks about a scenario, a believing um, husband or wife with an unbelieving husband or wife, right? That scenario. And he says if the unbeliever in that relationship abandons you, you're not bound to that relationship anymore. In other words, you're free. But Paul's instructions isn't about the freedom you get with divorce. He actually tells that group to stay together too. Stay in it. But he puts a condition on the stay in it. And the condition is this, this phrase, consent to live with, which is not deciding to live at the same address. It implies all the covenant commitments that all the scriptures talk about. When you consent to live with each other, you consent to love, protect, and provide. Do you understand? All the burdens on that. Not just agree not to leave, but to love. That's the, that's the commitment. It's expected that the marriage would be good even in that situation. Let me give you one more, probably more familiar to you, and that is the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus addresses it in just two verses. Maybe you remember this section of Scripture. Um, you know, it's a kind of this rhythm thing where Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I tell you. He brings up this law that they work with, and then he redefines it. You remember? Somebody? Anybody remember? Okay, this will all be new to you if you don't remember. Um, 
But you cannot start that section without how it begins. Because if you do, you'll misinterpret the whole passage. Jesus says to the Pharisees and scribes, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the Pharisees and scribes, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes off into the series of statements of, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I tell you, if you hate, you're guilty. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you lust, you're guilty. You've, you've heard it said, just don't lie, but I'm telling you to cover your lies with oaths you don't intend to keep, man, you're guilty. You've heard it said, eye for an eye, but I tell you, turn the other cheek, right? All, all these series of statements. And then he says this about divorce. You've heard it said, just hand out certificates. Just give them away. Get rid of your wife. But I'm telling you to keep your covenant. And then he says this, except for sexual immorality. That's actually in that passage, chapter 5. So what is Jesus saying about divorce here? Again, to understand, this is always the hermeneutical process. You get away from the text to see what he's saying in total, not in the precision of it. Jesus is saying something about new life. That's what that whole section is about. Your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. All he's doing in Matthew 5 is describing God's people filled with God's spirit, living out the ethics of God's kingdom. He's not giving you law. He's talking about what it looks like when the Holy Spirit of God takes over your heart and regenerates you so that you live from a different place. He's not laying down, well, do this and don't do that and do this and don't do that and you're going to be okay with me. Law could never fix those things. He's laying it down the supernatural event that happens when the Holy Spirit regenerates the human heart. And this passage confronts all the superficial ways we try to be okay with ourselves. In other words, it is not okay. It is not okay to be religious and good. You must be made new by the Holy Spirit. Do you understand? You can come to church, good for you. We, we looked last week, Tyler taught this. God even says of his people, would you just shut the doors? Shut the doors of the church. I just want, wish one of you would put out these false fires of worship. You don't even mean it. The reality of this is, God is not okay with being religious and good, you need to be made new by the Holy Spirit. And what does that look like? Let's just go through this section. A Christian filled with the Holy Spirit isn't just gonna call it good that he didn't kill anybody. <laughs> he's gonna make it right with people he's angry with. A Christian filled with the Holy Spirit isn't just good with not committing adultery. He's gonna fight lust with everything he's got. If it gets in my way, I'll cut it off and I'll remove it. Not pragmatically lose a hand or an eye. It's just deal harshly with sin. That's what he says. A Christian filled with the Holy Spirit isn't okay with empty promises and fake commitments. He's telling the truth and keeping his word. That's what a Christian does, filled with the Holy Spirit. A Christian filled with the Holy Spirit isn't okay with settling scores. We forgive because we've been forgiven much. A Christian filled with the Holy Spirit isn't okay with easy love. We're going to love people that have nothing to offer us. And when it comes to marriage, a Christian filled with the Holy Spirit isn't just going to throw off his covenants in marriage for any reason that will make him happy. We're going to keep our commitments to love. I would tell you, you probably already know this, but we share a lot in common with the attitude and demeanor of Israel. Sin is the same everywhere. Because when Moses said that when you find something indecent in her, I mean, that was all they needed. It's like the cows got out of the barn and they just reinterpreted it and said, well, any reason. That's what he meant. 
just hand out certificates of divorce. It was kind of a any cause culture. Do you understand? Does it sound familiar? Because we have this no fault thing we do. That's American. Why? I'm not happy. Why? I don't really know. I'd just rather not. <laughs> it's exactly what Jesus is referring to here in chapter 5 of Matthew. You don't just throw off your marriage for any reason. You stay in it. But clearly, clearly, Jesus isn't saying that there is no reason for divorce because he mentions one, sexual immorality. Right? What you need to do to understand this is you need to realize that Jesus wasn't doing a sermon on divorce. He was interpreting Deuteronomy 24, right? Which was radical to them because they were under the impression that you can just lose your wife for any reason. And he says, no, you can't. And then he throws down except for sexual immorality. The word, I mean, we think you go way down, is pornea. It means perversion. We could get really detailed in all what he means there. But let's just leave it with the most obvious. And you might ask yourself the the question is, why doesn't Jesus, if he's talking about divorce, why did he bring up other pieces and parts to make this more clear? Why doesn't he talk about Malachi 2, which seems to have a really something to say, charge against the people? And I would suggest to you, he, he didn't address it because he wasn't asked. But I will tell you the strongest reason why he doesn't address it is because the covenant responsibilities were understood in Israel. That's why when Paul brings it up in Ephesians 5, nobody of the Gentiles understood what God thought about the covenant. And that's why he brings it up. The people in, his, in Jesus' day, they knew, they heard that commitment. But we already know, don't we, that the scriptures in total say more than just what Jesus said about divorce. We've seen a couple of them. Deuteronomy 24, hard-heartedness that Jesus repeats in Matthew 19. Matthew 5, adultery. 1 Corinthians 7, abandonment. Exodus 21, neglect. And here in Malachi, chapter 2, is treachery. When Jesus mentions sexual sin in chapter 5 of Matthew, it's an example of the hard-heartedness that he said. That's one of the reasons. That's one of the reasons. So let me just boil this down. That was a lot of information to say, well, the, the, you can't just go down three words to define what God feels about divorce. Let me give you the so what of, those, of what I think the scripture teaches. God is for marriage, and he wants it honored. Anybody miss that? And he's against the sin that destroys it. And he's massively protective of women who are caught in bad situations. All of the Old Testament, when it talks about these things, talks about the position of protecting the one who is, who is in a position of disadvantage. And it's always the wife. All right, I need to say this. Only because you might judge me as being a person who was going too far. But let me not go too far. Ladies, you're not immune to treachery. You can hate just as good as anyone. You're a sinner too. You can neglect your responsibilities and hate just as strongly and destroy your marriage just as quickly. You know you play a role in this too, right? Come on, you don't want to say amen to that, but that's just true. We all carry it. But I, but I feel compelled to tell you, I can't read the scriptures without seeing God's burden put on the shoulders of men. It is what it is, and it says what it says. It's our responsibilities. The most common situation in the Old Testament and I'll tell you really even in the new, is that husbands fail to love their wives. 
And in that culture, the men had all the control, right? You couldn't even, a woman couldn't even get divorced without help. She had to go to the rabbi who would then, the rabbi would go to the husband and say, hey, would you let her go? And then it was all up to them. Total disadvantage. And I, I don't, you know, we're not like that, but we're not over that. Let me add one more thought. And I would call it the theological logic part of the Bible. In Proverbs chapter 6, God is just blunt when he says, these are some things I hate. Like, if you're going to keep a list to not do, keep the list of what God hates around. Right? Just, okay, those things he's really bothered by. And what Proverbs 6 says, I hate pride. We know this, right? I hate pride. I hate lying. I hate murder. I hate divisiveness. And I hate evil schemes, etc., etc. Seven things he says there. He hates them. He's never okay with them. God never says to those things, well, I understand your situation. Here's an exemption. Go ahead and have pride. Or here's an exemption to that. Go ahead and murder. Or here's an exemption. Go ahead and be deceitful. Go ahead and have evil schemes. God never, ever, ever creates allowance for the things he hates in Proverbs. Because there's sin. And he's holy. And he always hates sin. So here's the point. God isn't for divorce, but he allows it for the brutal circumstances of sin. Why? Because sin can destroy our spouse. And that's unavoidable. I read this uh, probably a year ago or so, a quote, maybe it helps. God's perfect will isn't revealed in allowing for divorce, but his character is as one who's concerned to protect the victims of hate and abuse. So what? I'm putting it on us, guys. And this is as firm as I can put it. If you want to boil this whole thing down to like one sentence, what did we learn today? If you think that you can neglect, abuse, and hate your wife and hide behind the covenant of marriage, you're dead wrong. That is not okay. You can't stand before God someday and say, well, at least I stayed married, God. I had no interest in fulfilling the obligation, the responsibilities of the kind of marriage you called me to, but at least, at least God, I stayed, from, I stayed married, so it, it's worth something, right? You know what you sound like? You sound like the Pharisees when Jesus addresses them and says, well, at least I didn't kill. At least I didn't cheat. At least I, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. And he says, well, no, 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 it's way more than that. When the Holy Spirit gets inside of you, right? I was massively convicted when I read this. And you know what really convicted me? When it starts with God saying, I see. I see it all. And if God sees in Israel what happens behind closed doors, he sees what happens behind your closed doors. And it's not good if it's true. And I don't want to put conviction on you if there's no conviction needed. But I have to say this because the text says it and let the Holy Spirit do what he wants with it. So what do you do with something like this? I can only assume, guys, because I'm going to just pretend like I represent us. All I can think of is the ways I didn't do this. Where I didn't cherish Sue the way I should have. Or care for her like I would care for me. I'm a puke. It's just what it is. I'm tremendously convicted. But I know I'm not alone. Because I talked to some of you. 
And this would be an absolute waste of time. This sermon would be a total waste of time if we didn't stare down the assessment of God as he looks into your homes and says, listen, it is not okay. It is not okay to be religious and hide and not love. Never. So what do you do? I mean, what do you do? If God is doing what he does and he brings conviction, what do you do now? Can I just, I'm going to make it really simple because I don't know what else to do. It always starts with confession. I'm going to invite the the worship team back up because we're going to respond in a song in a second. But I don't know what else to do but to tell God I see it. Disagree with him. I'm not going to justify it. I'm not going to say I'm innocent. I'm not going to blame it on somebody else. I'm just going to own it. So if, if, and I say that, if God in his spirit has pushed on your heart, I would just call you to confess. You just say it. God, I am what you see. Let's do this together. Let's just bow our heads together. And I'm just going to give you some minutes of silence where you can just be honest between you and the Father. He already knows, by the way, so you're not going to surprise him. Let's confess. God, we confess our uh, selfishness. We confess uh, our wandering heart and irresponsible lives. We confess our treacherous behavior towards our wives or our husbands, for that matter. God, you've asked for so much more. Your power and the Spirit has provided so much more. So, God, we just want to call it like you call it. You've painted a clear picture of what the covenant looks like, what what love looks like when it's lived out, and we can just say we're not there. So, God, this whole thing starts with us just recognizing that and saying it to you in, in humility and brokenness. And I know, I know when you start processes like this, God, it isn't just a quick event. It happens over time. So God, continue to bring um, repentance to us, I pray.